Hey guys, I'm Chris. Hey everybody, I'm Robert. And we're the Film Flamers. And we're continuing our month of 13s with uh, another movie with 13 in it. Well, technically that's not correct. Because the first thing was uh, 13 one 3 in or whatever the fuck it was. Third one 3 in ghosts? Third one 3 in ghosts. Yeah, that's close All to 13 out. This one's just the numbers, 1-3. The 13th. 13th. The 13th warrior. With a superscript of the TH. Mm-hmm. Don't want a warrior no more. See, that's from last month when we were doing Nightmare on Elm Street. It fits. <laughs> Freddy's remains remain at the remains of the day <laughs> at the remains of last month <laughs> nope we're here to talk about Antonio Banderas now Anthony Flags himself oh hell yeah oh hell yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah and I've been wanting to talk about this for a while now I have, had never seen it it's just one of those uh, horror adjacent type of situations kind of like um well i thought it was going to be kind of like the ghost in the darkness right one mm. of those forgotten ish movies from the 90s that everyone seems to remember kind of fondly and it's surprisingly good on a rewatch well i was half right <laughs> what nobody remembers it I think- fondly <laughs> <laughs> No, I think people remember it fondly. Maybe the ones that do remember it, and the but then the the, the recent watch isn't exactly the best. But we're gonna get into that. We will. We'll get into all the fondles. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> the Thirteenth Warrior is a 1999 American historical action film based on Michael Crichton's 1976 novel Eaters of the Dead. Oh, which is a loose adaptation of the tale of Beowulf combined with Alma Ibn Fadlan's historical account of the Volga Vikings. The film stars Antonio Banderas, Diana Venora, and Omar Sharif. The film was directed by John McTiernan and written by William Wisher Jr. and Warren Lewis. Michael Crichton served as producer as well as directing a few uncredited reshoots. Jerry Goldsmith composed the score. I love Jerry Goldsmith. I know you do. I saw his picture while I was doing some research for this, and he looks like the Crypt Keeper. No! No, he didn't. That's just a bad shot. Well, whatever picture they have on IMDb, it was like the oldest he had ever looked. Oh my god. Well, you shan't be looking at that one. No. Okay, listeners. They bid me take my place among them in the halls of Valhalla, where the brave may live forever. What the fuck accent was that? (laughs) Always with the hip bird. (laughs) This is the 13th warrior. The 313th warrior. No. (laughs) he was fortunate to have the love of the most beautiful woman in the kingdom unfortunately she was the king's wife and he was banished forever go with god you listening 
Now, this man of peace has wandered into a land at war against an enemy that comes without warning and leaves without a trace. They are demons. You must know that 13 men have been chosen to destroy this evil. What the hell are you saying? The 13th man is you. Now, one man. Tell them I am no warrior. Who has never known courage. <laughs> of that they are aware. Will join 12 warriors. I cannot lift this. Grow stronger. Who have never known fear. Let's go, little brother. I do not enjoy heights. And become something. <laughs> He never dreamed possible. Prepare yourself. One of them. From Michael Crichton, author of Jurassic Park. And John McTiernan, director of Die Hard. Ahmad Ibn Fadlan, played by Antonio Banderas, is the court poet of Abbasid Caliph al-Mutkadir <laughs> of Baghdad. <laughs> that is, until a brief amorous encounter with the wife of an influential noble gets him exiled into ambassadorship far away in northern Europe. Traveling with his father's old friend, Melchizedek, <laughs> Played by Omar Sharif. His caravan is saved from Tartar raiders by the appearance of Norsemen. He takes refuge at their settlement in the Volga River, and communications are established between Melchdick and Herger, played by Dennis Storhol. Storhoy? Hate you. <laughs> One of the Norsemen who happens to speak Latin. From Herger, Melchizedek and Matt even Fadlin learn that the celebration being held by the Norsemen is in fact the precursor to a funeral for their recently deceased king, played by corpse. <laughs> Herger is all... Why would you say Herger? I don't know. Is it Herger? It's yourself. Herger also introduces them to one of the king's sons, Bullwif. 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 Played by Vladimir Kulich. How about even Fadlin? <laughs> Witness a fight in which Bullwiff kills his brother in self-defense, which establishes Bullwiff as their heir apparent. The casual fratricide is followed by the funeral of the dead king, who was then traditionally cremated on a Viking ship, set adrift with a female slave who offered to sacrifice herself and accompany him to Valhalla, the Norse afterlife. <laughs> then cake and pie are served. <laughs> I was led to believe that there would be pie and punch. <laughs> the next day, the young prince, <clears throat> Wolfgar, enters the camp to request Bullowif's aid. His father, King Hrothgar, played by Sven Holter, has asked for assistance. 
as his lands in the far north are under attack from an ancient evil so frightening that even the bravest warriors dare not name it. The Angel of Death, or the resident Volva, <laughs> played by wise woman, <laughs> says that the mission will be successful but only if 13 warriors face this danger, and the 13th warrior must not be a Norseman. Ahmad ibn Fadlan is automatically and unwittingly recruited. Ahmad ibn Fadlan... <laughs> <laughs> is initially treated differently by the Norsemen, but they mock his smaller Arabian horse. However, he earns a measure of respect by quickly learning their language through careful observation and practice, his demonstration of horsemanship, and his ability to write with steaks in the sand. <laughs> Bulawif, already himself a polygot, asks Ahmad to teach him the Arabic script, which cements their mutual goodwill. Reaching Hrothgar's kingdom, they confirm that their foe is indeed the ancient Wendel, monstrous fiends who come with the mist to kill and take human heads. Told that if they go into the woods today, they'll be in for a big surprise, the group does, and eventually finds and searches through a raided cabin where they find a Venus figurine amongst all the various corpses in Chunky Salsa, which is said to represent the mother of the Wendel. On the first night, the warriors Hyglak and Ragnar die. After a string of clashes, Bulwis band determine that the Wendel are actually human cannibals who are clad to appear like bears, live like bears, and think of themselves as bears. Just like me. Particularly bloodthirsty and organized ones. That doesn't sound like a teddy bear's picnic. With the warriors' numbers dwindling, having also lost Skeld, Halga, Rodereth, and Rethel... <laughs> And their positions all but indefensible. They consult the vulva of the village. <laughs> she tells them to track the Wendel to their lair and destroy their leaders, specifically the mother of the Wendel and their warlord who wears the horns of power. Captivated by the old vulva, Bulawif <laughs> and the remaining warriors infiltrate the Wendel Caves and kill the mother, but not before Bulawif is scratched deeply across the shoulder by her long, shitty fingernail. Maybe some ancient version of Hepi. <laughs> I might even Fadlin and the rest of the Norse warriors escape the caves, but without the injured Helfdane, who opts to stay behind and fight them to give them a greater chance of escape. They return to the village to prepare a last stand. As the Wendel descend upon them from the mist, the poisoned and dying Bullywiff staggers outside before the battle, inspiring the warriors with a Viking prayer for the honored dead who will enter Valhalla. The Wendel attack, and Bullywiff succeeds in killing the Wendel warlord, causing the others to flee for some reason. Finally, his task complete, Bullywiff succumbs to the poison. Ahmad ibn Fadlan witnesses Bulwis' royal funeral before returning to his homeland, grateful to the Norsemen for helping him to become a useful servant of God. Cake and pie. <laughs> I hope he had some pie and punch before he went back home. The end. <laughs> oh, I will forever be... Tortured. Full of whiff. For that fucking Jaws. <laughs> Volva. Volva, that's what I said. Yes. Volva. Why not to say Volva? <laughs> Thank you.
The 13th Warrior was released on August 27, 1999 on 2300 screens. The film grossed more than 10 million opening weekends, securing the number two spot at the box office behind The Sixth Sense, which was in its fourth week in the number one spot. The Sixth Sixth Sense. I don't know. How did they put the six in the six cents? They wrote it out. Damn it. <laughs> the 13th Warrior would remain in the top 10 for four weeks before falling sharply. The film would eventually gross 61 million. The budget, which was originally around 85 million, reportedly soared to 100 million before principal photography concluded. With all of the reshoots and promotional expenses, the total cost of the film was rumored to be as high as 160 million. <laughs> Which, given its lackluster box office take, 61 million worldwide, made for a loss of 70 to 130 million. So this is back when Fellowship of the Ring, uh, Two Towers, this is around the same time. Those were all made for 70 million each. Yeah. So, so this something happened. Way here. too much money. Yeah. According to uh, Wikipedia, this makes 13th Warrior the third biggest box office bomb in history, adjusted for inflation, behind John Carter and the Lone Ranger. Both infamous box office bombs. That's true, although John Carter is actually a very good film, in my opinion. I haven't seen either one of them. The Lone Ranger, I felt like, was like kind of racist, so I never, I never went. I mean, wasn't Johnny Depp playing? Um, yeah, Tonto? brown face kind of thing going on. Yeah, yeah. terrible. The Thirteenth Warrior holds a thirty-three percent on Rotten Tomatoes with an audience score at sixty-six percent. The site's consensus reads: atmospheric, great sets and costumes, but thin plot. Reviews from critics were mixed upon release. James Bertolini gave the Thirteenth Warrior three stars out of four, calling it a solid offering that delivers an exhilarating one hundred minutes. Lisa Schwartzbaum of Entertainment Weekly rated it A- and called it the most unexpectedly audacious, exhilarating, and wildly creative adventure thriller I have seen in ages. Calm down. Conversely, Roger Ebert gave the film one and a half stars out of four, remarking that it, quote, lumbers from one expensive set piece to the next without taking the time to tell a story that might make us care. Ooh. The outcome of the film's production disappointed Omar Sharif so much that he temporarily retired from film acting, <laughs> not taking a role in, in another major film until 2003's Monster Ibrahim. He said, quote, After my small role in The 13th Warrior, I said to myself, Let us stop this nonsense, these meal tickets that we do because it pays well. I thought, unless I find a stupendous film that I love and that makes me want to leave home to do, I will stop. Bad pictures are very humiliating. I was really sick. It is terrifying to have to do the dialogue from bad scripts to face a director who does not know what he's doing in a film so bad that it's not even worth exploring. Yikes. Damn, Omar. I don't think it's half that bad. No, I mean, he definitely felt some kind of a way about it. I would watch this movie before I'd watch fucking Dr. Zhivago again. Yeah. Mr. Sharif. <laughs> I'm a huge fan of him. Uh, he is the man that comes out of the out of the mirage in Lawrence of Arabia, that mm-hmm. miracle of a shot, you know. And he is a really, really good character and actor in that movie, and goes on to have a wonderful career. And of course, he's an Egyptian actor that's like getting all of these you know roles in the '60s and '70s and '80s and stuff. Omar Sharif's very famous. Yes, I love Omar Sharif. I think he got a little down about this picture, but you know. He didn't have a very big part, so I mean, like, I don't know what he was expecting. No, he was only like the first fourth of this movie. Yeah, as a, like a basically if, a translator. If a fourth of it, like he's in it for like moments. Yeah, mere moments. Mm-hmm. But he's famous. It's got some accolades at the Alma Awards. It won Best Actor for Antonio Banderas, and at the International Film Music Critics Association Awards, it was nominated for Film Score of the Year. But Jerry Goldsmith lost to Jerry Goldsmith. 
For the mummy. For the mummy. <laughs> <laughs> Which is arguably a better theme. Yeah. Or better score. I don't know. Around this time, he did some that were a little bit, you know, like each other. I don't remember what the music from the mummy sounds like. Oh, uh, I do. But anyway, the we're probably going to do it someday for Popcorn Month. Oh, I'm sure. That was a huge movie. It made a shit ton of money. Yeah, it's got a big franchise. I saw the theater. Yeah, we do. I remember back in the late 90s. Mm-hmm. Um, 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 this cast, though, is pretty good. Um, Antonio Banderas, obviously, as um, Ahmad Ibn Fidlan, whatever. I don't know how to say I'm it. In, yeah. I'm in, yeah. I've butchered it a thousand times now. So. But yeah, he's been over like a hundred movies now. I think the only other one that we've actually ever mentioned Antonio Banderas has been interview, interview with a Vampire, where he curiously uh, and excellently played Armand. Mm-hmm. I really enjoy him in that movie. I Miscast, enjoy- but I mean... I liked him in that movie the very first time I saw it. He was I- iconic in that movie, though. Didn't... I mean, I was trying to think of like what I knew Antonio Banderas before Interview with the Vampire. Uh, Desperado, maybe? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he went on to have quite a large, um, you know, English speaking career. Well, he was an established like movie star in Spain before he was Mm -hmm. ever like in Desperado, as far as I know. Spain and Mexico, too. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, he had a lot of movies under his belt before he started making American films. And later in the 90s, it was Zorro with an excellent fucking score by James Horner, by the way. I forgot all about Zorro. And Catherine Zeta in that movie, too? Yes. Yeah, that and The Phantoms, where she came out of in the Uh 90s. So, I mean, yeah, he had a really big career. I don't really see him that often anymore, though. He's in stuff. Is he? Yeah. He's in big, he's like one of the blockbusters that's coming out recently. So, I mean, aside from him and Omar Sharif, the rest of this cast, I don't really know. Well, there's Diane Venora as Queen um, Vailu, I guess. And she played Juliet's mother in Romeo plus Juliet in the 90s. Oh, okay. For some reason, I always thought that was, you know, the our actress from American Horror Story that we like so much. That's not Jessica Lange? It's not Jessica Lange. It's, what? I, I literally... Yes! See, I thought it was Jessica fucking Lange. Thank you. I'm not the only one. It's Diane Venora. It's this bitch right here. I have been living a fucking lie my entire life. I've been telling people Jessica Lange is in that movie. Same. I really love her in that one. You know, I was like, good. oh, she's real good in Romeo and Juliet. She's, it's not her. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> As Diane Venora. I feel like I need to go back to every person that I said that to and be like, hey, I was wrong. <laughs> she was fucking good in that. Yes. Anyway, uh, she was kind of like, Link, can you miss her in this one a little bit? She's yeah. in a couple of scenes, obviously. Like, but God, in that movie, when she's like on the balcony, like screaming for Julia at the beginning, right before the costume party. Yeah, I could have sworn that was Jessica Lang, but it's not. Fuck me. Well, you're welcome. Now that you know the truth. Now you can um actually other people, other gays. I will. My God, I can't wait for someone to do um, that. Um actually, that was Diane Venora. <laughs> okay, come on, y'all. She was in the one thirtieth warrior. <laughs> <laughs> she was in the one thirteenth warrior. <laughs> as Queen Wheelie <Will> <laughs> Uh We've also got Vladimir Kulich as Bullywiff, uh, or the leader. Uh, and he actually, he was in a lot of stuff, right? And um, the other thing that he was in in the 90s would have been like Angel, or I guess that was the 2000s at that point, because he yeah. played The Beast, oh. which was one of their biggest bads, I guess, in Angel. He was a good character. I liked him in this movie. Because yeah. at first I thought, oh, we're like being set up to not care for this person very much, but very quickly in the movie. Yeah, outside of killing his brother in self-defense at the very beginning, like um, he is seen as like, you know, the philosopher king kind of like he wants to write. He wants to make sure everyone's OK and is happy. And but he's very does it with the, the, the most minimal amount of words and actions that he can. Yeah. He's kind of like this, like living statue throughout this movie. And he's like the mythical hero, not like 
the hero of a thousand faces that you see, I guess that would be the mythical hero, but not like the hero like Han Solo is a hero. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. He is the mythical hero from these these stories. He is Beowulf. Bullywiff is Beowulf in this story. So yeah, I feel like when we were first introduced to that character and he became king, I was like, oh, so he's the one that Antonio Banderas is going to have to win over throughout the course of this movie. And the very last scene, he's going to be like, okay, now I finally respect you. But no, no. they he like he respected him, him early on. Right away. Yeah. yeah. Tries to get him into the crowd pretty quickly. And I was kind of surprised by that. And I was just like, okay, I, I dig this guy. He's a good, he's a good leader. Yeah. And, um, you know, that kind of brings me into Dennis uh, Storhai as Herger. I don't know how to say that. Um, he's the one that is speaking with uh, them in the beginning. He's speaking. Um, at first, they start to speak Latin together, I guess. Yeah. And he's the one that kind of takes him under his wing, calls him little brother, which I thought was really, really enduring. And I really loved this actor and what he was able to bring. He really brings, like, the humanity um, and the feeling uh, and humanness to this role. He's also the one that kind of, I didn't put it in the synopsis, but goes and fights that big redhead guy or whatever for mm-hmm. no reason. <laughs> that was cool. I, that, that was my favorite part in the movie, actually. Really? Yeah. <clears throat> I, that was the like the the time I liked the movie the most was during that moment. And it was like, and it was funny. You know what I mean? Like, I, I really liked it. Yeah. I liked this character. I liked that moment. He seemed like a really good character. I mean, I most of these job. Norsemen were good characters, yes. which I was really surprised about because it's not and they all had the movie to be. These were, like, I, I should have listed them out, but, like, uh, Bullywiff is the leader, and this guy, uh, Dennis Storheiserger, says the joyous. And there's, like, the stoic and uh, the musician, and, like, they all have, like, these weird astrological mm. things or something uh, with them that I don't know if it, if it is from Beowulf or if it's from something else from Crichton, I don't know, but it seems like they're all like very intentional archetypes. I mean, I haven't read Beowulf since college, but I don't remember there being a lot of like characters like this has. No, it sounds like one of those things like Robin Hood and his merry band and they all are archetypes or something. Yeah, it's yeah, almost yeah. like Crichton and I wrote that extra layer into this just for interest. And I think that's fine. Hmm. Obviously it served it pretty well. Then we have Maria Bonneville as Olga, which is kind of the, with a weak romantic interest in this. Um, she also kind of like goes around and heals people, I guess, or yeah. pretends to by having like some sort of dried congealed urine from a yak or something that she gets. And from then she people. has sex with them. Yes. And then she has sex with them. And then we've got the wind, the Windle mother. There's a lot of cast in this, but I didn't want to list everybody because like, I don't know any of these people. I don't either. Like, I mean, like I said, except for the previous people, obviously, except for Antonio Banderas and Omar Sharif, the only people I was really, really familiar with. Sure. Okay. So we talked a little bit about this in the pre synopsi when we were introducing the film. Um, This is obviously based on Michael Crichton's book, Eaters of the Dead, which we mentioned. So Crichton explained in the appendix inside that book that this is based on two sources. The first, uh, like three chapters, are a retelling of Ahmed Ibn Fadlan's personal account of his actual real-life historical journey north and his experiences with and observations of their um, their Varangians, which were kind of like more in Russia. Okay. But he went into the coastlines up there in like the Scandinavian coastlines and saw like a Viking ship burial while he was up there and described everything. And it's one of the best accounts of early middle age culture that we have. I love it. Yeah. And so I didn't realize that this was based on an actual person that went up, you know, went up there. Obviously there's a lot of historical fiction in here with it being kind of like an exile. And then the <laughs> remainder is of course, it's kind of a retelling of Beowulf. 
So I don't, I don't remember how much we talked about Michael Crichton when we talked about Jurassic Park. We, I'm we sure did a we bit, did. Yeah. yeah, but like, so Eaters of the Dead was like one of the few Michael Crichton books that I did not read when I was younger, when I had my Crichton phase. Oh, I mean, I, like I an read, earlier book of his too. Yeah. I mean, I even, and I've read like earlier books than this too. I mean, like Andromeda Strain and stuff like that. But like, I did not read Eaters of the Dead. I read Disclosure for crying out loud. But I didn't read Eaters of the Dead. Yeah. One would have thought that based on that title, it would have been more up your alley. Yes. But I, I feel like, it seemed a little too Beowulfy for me, and when I was reading Beowulf in high school, I was yeah. just like, "No, I want nothing to do with anything remotely like Beowulf." And then, if you're old enough in high school, you remember when they were trying to push Grendel's mother onto you too, which was a much more modern book that came out in the late '90s, I think. And I did not have to read that. Thank okay. God. Okay. So, well, actually, it's very, very good. There's actually a couple of them, and one of them is like super highly praised by the critics and stuff. I'm like, just not a fan of Beowulf. I've never read it too many. I've read it like three times now in different classes. And it's one of those things that it's like just more important <clears throat> than it is good, right? Um, but getting back to Ahmed Ibn Fadlan, uh, he was a 10th century Arab traveler, scholar, and diplomat from the Abbasid Caliphate. Now, that's the caliphate that, if people don't know what these things mean, uh, it's like the third generation after Muhammad, mm-hmm. right? theoretically. right? Remember, this is like in the 900s. Uh, he's best known for his written account of his journey to the Volga River region, which is now Russia. And this account, often referred to as the Ibn Fadlan's journey, provides valuable insights into the culture, customs, and encounters of various peoples in Eastern Europe and Asia during the medieval period. There's actually a YouTube uh, channel that you can go to, uh, at least maybe even a couple of them, that they pick up all of these old accounts and like, people from ancient China going into Rome and describing how to get there and what they see based on like the lens of their own culture. It's fucking fascinating. I mean, yeah, I would assume that today, like me now would find that very, very fascinating. Yes. Um, but anyway, this is like, I didn't know that until I did the research for this movie, which is that, you know, I feel like uncultured for not knowing that, but this guy was from essentially, you know, a, what is modern day Iraq and, you know, went into the North and traveled the world and wrote all about it. And it's still useful to this day. I've never heard of this man. Not once in my life. We should read it. Yeah. God. And I was, I majored in fucking literature. So, well, it would have been more of history probably, you know, I I mean like he's based on, I don't know that he's known for his prose. No, but I mean like half the things that you have to read in, in like the first section of world literature and college, right. is mostly historical. Pliny the elder. (laughs) I mean, like you would think that I would have read this, but no, never heard his name. That's terrible. I also feel uncultured. Yeah. So on the other side of this is Beowulf, which is, of course, the old English epic poem dating back to the early medieval period, likely composed between the 8th and 11th centuries. So it could have been written around the same time when he was up there, right? So it's one of those uh, most important works of old English literature and has had a significant influence on Western literature and storytelling. The poem is set in Scandinavia and tells the heroic tale of Beowulf a Geetish warrior who comes to the aid of Hrothgar, the Danish king, by battling the monster Grendel who has been terrorizing Hrothgar's kingdom. Oh my God, I'm having all these flashbacks now just hearing the name Hrothgar. There's also a movie that came out in like the <clears throat> mid-thousands too. I mean, there's plenty. And there's one with Christopher fucking Lambert, like Highlander himself plays Beowulf in one of these things. Hold on, I need a drink for this conversation. Uh, wasn't, uh, what's her, what's her fuck's name in that movie? Angelina Jolie, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's in the 3D one, yeah. Mm-hmm. There's one before that that was like, there's been a bunch of adaptions, right? So the meaning of Beowulf lies in its exploration of heroism, loyalty, and the human condition. Beowulf embodies the heroic ideals of courage, strength, and self sacrifice. The poem also delves into the idea of fate 
and the inevitable mortality of even the greatest of heroes. It reflects the values and culture of the time, as well as the complex relationships between different tribes and peoples in early medieval world. Additionally, Beowulf serves as a historical document, offering insights into the language, customs, and beliefs of the Germanic peoples in the early Middle Ages. So two like really, really interesting sources, and Michael Crichton must have been looking at this stuff and being like, hey, this is around the same time and place. What if, right? Mm-hmm. And so puts together his kind of horror-adjacent adventurism that he likes to write about so much and essentially writes a book called Eaters of the Dead about it. And there it is. There it is. There it is. And I know that, like, he wanted to turn that into a movie for some time, right? Or he really wanted it. Other to directors have bought like the the rights to it yeah. throughout the decades and stuff, and it finally just happened. Didn't make a lot of money. <laughs> <laughs> well, he was determined. He was. Um, so originally, obviously, this was titled "Eaters of the Dead." Uh, and production began in the summer of 1997, but the film went through several re-edits after test audiences hadn't reacted well to the initial cut. Crichton took over as director himself because of the poor test audience's reception, determined to make it a good movie uh, or at least a pop, like a, an audience uh, popcorn movie one, you know, causing the uh, release date to be pushed back over a year. The film was recut and a new ending was added. So one could say that the astronomical budget that this movie ended up with, right, could have been because of all these reshoots. Yes, actually. Reshoots are expensive. Yeah. So, so it, was, it was about 60-something, 60 60-something 60 probably before that, and then it, like, ballooned to another $40 million. And the fucking, And that like, was Michael Crichton. Hubris. You know what I mean? Like, I can do better than the director that we hired to do this. I'm just going to do it myself because I wrote the book kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, like... Screams of Stephen King's monster truck movie or whatever. <laughs> Maximum Overdrive? Yeah. I mean, like, so... I don't know. At some point... And we've talked about this in the podcast before. Like when you you create something like a novel or or whatnot, you have to you have to let it go and let somebody else like well, do I the work. I don't agree. Like I think some of the best movies that we've ever reviewed and the movies that we like a lot of the times are writer director combos that are really really passionate about the material themselves. And that's fine. But if you feel that way, if you're that passionate you about skill. it, just do it yourself. <laughs> he didn't. He obviously did not have the skill. Yeah. Well, clearly. Yeah, because he's doing, like, rack zooms and shit. Like, I don't know which director. Like, John McTiernan is an established, like, good action beat director. Yeah. This kind of falls apart in some of his action sequences. It really does. It doesn't and, It doesn't look like an action movie. Yeah, and so I'm just like, okay, this is a mess, and it's just too many cooks, right? And we'll get into that, too. Okay. But first, look and feel. Uh, the music by Jerry Goldsmith is very good, at least the, the main theme. I do feel like it's kind of hurried because... The original soundtrack was actually composed by Graham Ravel. <laughs> what this and, f- <laughs> Yes. <laughs> I didn't know this either. And featured uh, Dead Can Dance singer Lisa Gerard. Uh, the score was rejected by Michael Crichton himself <laughs> and replaced by one composed by Crichton's usual collaborator, Jerry Goldsmith. <laughs> okay. So I love Jerry Goldsmith. You know, he's one of my top three. I know. If not my number one, right? But Graham Ravel is no slouch, especially if you hear like you know his oeuvre which he was known for uh dead calm the crow from dusk till dawn the craft the saint spawn bride of chucky sin city the riddick franchise and freddy versus jason that's a lot of genre work there that is hmm i wonder if there's a connection could this be indicative of the tone that they were going for <laughs> my goodness not that jerry goldsmith's any slouch to horror motifs 
maybe you think of Poltergeist or, you know, Ave Satani or whatever the fuck. Oh, from The Omen? From The Omen. Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, like... (sighs) But Jerry Goldsmith also is known for opening up the orchestra into massive adventure scores. And, okay, so I'm sure that we're going to talk about, like, how this movie could have been a little bit more horror adjacent later on. But I feel like, you're right, like, like that could completely change the tone of a movie by taking someone who does a lot of genre work and replacing it with Jerry Goldsmith, who also does a lot of genre work, but... But also is known for his big epic stuff. Like exactly. this, this score actually reminds me of First Night, which came out like four years before this. I like First Night. That was a good movie. Yeah. But I mean, yeah, this movie also is trying to be an epic, right? Or at least Could parts of it. Could have been. So I mean, I, I feel like I feel like we're starting to get to to the the crux of, of the, some of the problems in this, right? Mm-hmm. So maybe we had a director, John McTiernan, who's making action action set pieces or making an action movie that is turning out to be a little bit more genre or a little bit more horror adjacent, maybe more than Crichton wanted, and then just completely took over and kicked out an entire score. Okay, another reason why the budget probably went up because I sure as hell would think that Jerry Goldsmith costs a lot more money than Graham Ravel. He had a completed score more than a completed score because you can find it on youtube and it is excellent i'm about halfway through it and i'm like holy shit this is actually a really good fucking horror score oh my god i'm already kind of like and they do just as much epic kind of stuff it's just it's just kind of downplayed a little bit it's more into like the less swashbuckling theme Uh that they probably paid jerry goldsmith to do you know, and ask for specifically, but this guy's much more kind of authentic sounding. Okay. And a little bit more, you know, subsumed and, you know, uh, and then they get to the horror stuff and like the tension stuff and it's better. I would like to kind of hear that. And I'm kind of curious as to what like these other, if, do these other cuts exist? Is there a cut of this movie or is it just lost to no, time it's at this point? fucking gone. It's fucking gone. And no director knows what all's there. You know, I oh. think Touchtone might know. But like Crichton doesn't know, and he was a producer, and then and then director, and then you know John McTiernan doesn't give a shit. I don't think he's dead now. No, he's just in prison. <laughs> <laughs> no, Michael Crichton. Oh, Michael Crichton. Yes, yeah. but we'll get to that. Okay. Um, and I don't want to blame the cinematographer either for some of these problems, right? Because this is Peter Menzies Jr. One of his earliest jobs was actually as a camera operator on Crocodile Dundee. But I haven't seen that in forever. Oh, but he did uh, Die Hard with a Vengeance, A Time to Kill, Tomb Raider, When a Stranger Calls, the new one, uh-huh. uh, The Incredible Hulk, which was the Hulk that's in the MCU um, with Edward Orton, Clash of the Titans, and Gods of Egypt. All those are good-looking movies, right? Nothing to like win an Oscar. You know, but he's competent, right? He's not the one that's choosing to do these rack zooms and no. shit like that. Right? So this is a very wide Someone shot. Someone who did this did not know how to move move a camera very well in some in some cases. Well, could it also be a, an editing issue? There's lots of editing issues. Yeah, yeah. Right? Especially at the end. Like, man, <laughs> what the fuck happened? They had an extra year? I don't even know. And no one wants to talk about it either. But, yeah, there's problems. Like, there's a tonal problem here. There's too many cooks. Like... When it comes to this, I feel like with creatives like John McTiernan and Michael Crichton involved, one wonders where the problems start and ended, right? So John McTiernan, he's known for Predator, which we just did. Yep. Die Hard, The Hunt for Red October, Last Action Hero, Die Hard with a Vengeance, The Thomas Crown Affair, Rollerball, <laughs> and finally Federal Prison. What? What <laughs> the fuck on, is that? <laughs> <laughs> because on Rollerball, he had uh, his producer's phone tapped. Oh, he's in Federal Prison. <laughs> 
<laughs> I thought that was a movie title. Yeah. No, I'm just talking talking about what he's known for. It's <laughs> <laughs> producer's phone tag. Yes. Why? Apparently he'd been doing this. And so maybe that was what was going on between him and fucking Michael Crichton. I don't fucking know. Oh my lord. Like he, he was like having issue. people followed and shit. <laughs> Oh my God, John McTiernan. <laughs> so the FBI put him in fucking jail for a year. He just got out, like, a, I don't know, a little while ago. Holy shit. He made another movie called Basic after that, and I just haven't heard from him since. But he makes competent horror movies, or action movies, really, is what they yeah, are. Yeah, he makes great action movies. The Hunt for Red October and Die Hard are some of the best action movies that I've ever yeah. seen. And Last Action Heroes, you mm-hmm. know, No Slouch, Die Hard with a Vengeance. Uh, I've never seen Thomas Crown Affair, although that sounds like it's a remake as well. Uh, it is. It's a remake of a uh, Steve McQueen movie. Yeah. And of course, Michael Crichton passed away relatively young from lymphoma at the age of 66. Um, but he's, of course, best known for things like the Andromeda Strain and Congo and Sphere. We need to do Sphere at some point. Love Sphere. Um, Jurassic Park, obviously, The Lost World, um, the TV show, a bunch of TV series, including ER. Mm-hmm. You know, um, so I don't know. Knowing what I know now after finishing these notes, it might be interesting to see who you and other people think the horror and ta- uh, apologist is between the two of these guys when all is said and done. You want my opinion? Yeah. Fully? I mean, I feel like, okay, that's really hard the to The one say. that wants to make the movie a little bit more horror. I would feel like... Which, just, I mean, the original novel was called Eaters of the Dead. I know, but just based on the stuff that we've already seen, I mean, if we had a score that was going on that was sounding a little bit more horrific, right? Leads me to believe that the movie was sort of shifting in that direction. And I already know that John McTiernan can make an action movie that's also a horror movie. Yes. So, but and Michael Crichton writes books that have a lot of horror adjacency to their science fiction. Yeah. It's a really difficult question to answer, right? I feel like it may not be a question of whether or not either one of them is a horror apologist. I just feel at this point, and I don't know the whole story, obviously, but I feel like Michael Crichton wanted this movie to be a certain kind of thing. And he completely took over as yeah. producer and made himself a director. Yeah. I think he wanted another Jurassic Park from 1993, right? Yeah. So he he's, wanted he's something kind of looking huge. towards like a, a big adventure movie. That's a popcorn movie. That's right. an event, you know, and uh, didn't quite get there. No, he, but the good know. thing about Jurassic Park is that it leans into its horror a lot. It does, and it doesn't. You know, we, we made that case in our Jurassic Park episode. That's like way more than this movie. movie. Sure. Well, I don't know. There's some, at least some sight gags that are. I mean, I like that. To me, there's a huge, huge, huge missed opportunity with this movie and its villains, right? Like, if they start out being really like. Like mysterious. Yeah, you don't know if they're human or not because of the stories and the anecdotes. Right. You see them coming down from the mountains in the mist as a giant fucking line of fire. Exactly. And then you realize that people are like, when they get there, everyone's pretending to sleep when mm-hmm. he wakes up or whatever. And like you realize that they're being surrounded. But it's like so quiet you could drop a pen those are huge horror moments that it just kind of throws away after the first half of the movie exactly and so that that's why i had that that was my biggest problem with this is because i got really really interested in those villains and i was like i wanted to know like everything about them and i wanted them to remain just a little bit more mysterious and scary and they kind of lose their scary edge like after the first initial attack and i'm like okay yeah, you know, lose like, steam because it, it like yeah. explains it too fast to the and audience. And I completely, well, not completely, lose lost interest, but I lost interest quite a bit. You know, I was just like, well, now I kind of don't care as much because, like, to me, it became way less horrific and became more of an epic action movie. I mean, it wasn't a very good action ap- epic action movie. So. Yeah, it had its moments, but 
Overall, no, it fails. Um, yeah. So it's like it's kind of all over the place. It tries to be like a grounded dark fantasy that isn't dark enough, doesn't take itself seriously in some crucial moments. Um, you know, it's really going for the adventure, maybe some horror adjacency and some romance, but it's trying to do too much all at once. Yeah, I would agree with that. Right. It has a good cast, a good script, a good story, but something just didn't work with the filmmaking and the editing with this. Right. It needs to either be shorter or longer, probably much longer for this story. And, you know, some actual good editing done and maybe some stop doing the rack zooms and some weird directing choices. And, you know, we've got two directors that obviously don't respect or want each other in mm-hmm. each other's way. And then they have two completely different styles of filmmaking. One's an actual filmmaker and the other's not. But as a storyteller, yep, you know, it's like this is that kind of conflict does not a good movie make. No. And I feel like and I mean, like we said, it it's good if there's it's, a it feels like a, a three year filmmaking experience where you're stalemating each other. And yeah, just, for real. You're making crap. And then you put it out to the world and then nobody sees it. And now nobody wants to talk about it. You yeah. know what I mean? So, I mean, I totally get why people would not. And yes, you're right. I think that having a writer-director combo and things is really, really good. But in this case, like Michael Crichton is serving as executive producer to his own material when he probably should have just tried to direct it himself from the get-go, right? Because when you just jump in and take over and say, no, we're like scrapping all this stuff, like another part of a director's job is to stay on fucking budget. He probably got himself creative control. You know, he's probably pretty powerful at that point, you know? And I mean, like, how many Michael Crichton movies were made after the 13th? And Warrior? usually the director wants to like, you know, fuck, we see people like James Cameron breaking in to Piranha 2 or whatever, to try and make some sort of semblance of a good movie, mm-hmm. you know, and he had to be like carried away in chains or something, you know, versus like John McTiernan could not get out of there fast enough. Like, and he's like, nope, I was done. Photography was done. He was out. And Michael Crichton was like, okay, my turn. Oh my goodness. Such a fucking mess. Right. And so like, like myself, a lot of people on Letterboxd seem to think that there's some sort of epic two hour plus version of this, especially because the end seems so incredibly truncated. It just happens. The final battle is barely there. And the mm-hmm. film ends with some kind of montage of a funeral for Bullywhiff. And then he gets on a boat and leaves all within two or three minutes. I know it's, it's wrapped up it wraps, really quickly. Yeah. And you know, that's just, just some sort of abortion of editing. Well, happened there either yeah. from the studio or they like reshot a whole bunch of stuff and he refused to use the other stuff. Like, I don't know what happened there. We will never know. Yeah. And that, that's kind of frustrating, but you're right. I mean, like, I feel like by the time that they were editing everything that they had, they were like, all right, let's just end this and yeah. put it out. You know, that said, it's such a good premise and story and good acting. And, you know, there's some, some good script and story work there. Like, you know, when a film loses in excess of a hundred million dollars, you would expect it to be a pile of shit. And that's, of course, almost never the case. But it is certainly not the case here. There's still a lot good about this movie. Yeah, it's not. It's not a terrible movie, no. right? I just, I, I, the frustration is that it could have been so much fucking better. And I mean, and I can see that. Yep. You know, just on first watch, I was just like, no. I mean, like choices were made, obviously, and they just were the wrong choices, in my opinion. There are some really unique things about this movie, though, uh-huh. that are still unique to this day, in my opinion. So, right, like this is um, not only like what you would based on what we call 
when I don't necessarily agree with a lot of the time, the white savior movie of the nineties, mm-hmm. you know, this is basically a brown savior movie of the nineties, but also kind of a Muslim brown savior movie in the nineties. And it's kind of reverent to the religion. Yeah. That's way. certainly unique for an American. To this film. day. Yeah. Right. You know, you should have seen things like dances with wolves or the last samurai or any number of the other epics, mm-hmm. you know, that may or may not be a, a white savior movie or in dances with wolf cave. Certainly you know, going into uh, a white character for the audience um, to witness something that was going to happen regardless, right? Versus Last Samurai, I can't speak to that as much. I feel like that's more of a white safer movie. Um, There's a lot of examples though, right? And so like, this is much more of like, this is a brown guy, a Muslim brown guy coming into this, the story from the outside to be the audience, right? And it's like, and without him, they would not have succeeded, right? And Mm -hmm. so it's like super unique. And I can't think of another example of it. No, I just, I mean, and no, no shade to Antonio Banderas because he's he's good in this movie. He's yeah, not bad. The Spanish guy playing, an, but uh, it's a Arabic. Spanish guy playing a, a a Muslim person, and like he has he he has his like trademark Antonio Banderas accent, yeah. and I was just like, what? <laughs> like I didn't I didn't know what this movie was about. Really, I didn't know that. I thought he was playing a Spanish character. Yeah. And then when the movie first opens, and I was like, excuse me, like okay, they couldn't they could not find they couldn't an hire, Arabic actor. They couldn't hire. They should have found the guy from the fucking mummy is what they should have done yeah or like i mean my I god know if he's actually arabic or not this is probably what pissed off omar sharif you know what i mean he's just like okay i'm working my 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 arabic counterpart in this movie is antonio banderas yeah, yeah i'm never acting again <laughs> like good lord it took me out of it just a little bit or i mean it just took me a minute to like forgive it for for and its yeah, casting still brown, you know what i mean yeah so like I don't know. I mean, it's not like Last Samurai without Tom Cruise playing an Asian person or whatnot, right? Yeah. So well, not playing an Asian person. He's literally like traveled over there to like save the samurai or whatever yeah, the fuck. Yeah. And I'm oversimplifying it, obviously, but you know, it's just like to give an audience an end to witness something in a different perspective, right? Um, and so in those cases, those those characters are kind of tools, right? Yeah. This character is not a tool. I don't think uh, John Dunbar from Dance with Wolves is a tool. No, but there's plenty of other examples. Anyway, moving on. Um, also the use of language and learning of a language. Um, they use uh, Norwegian and occasionally Swedish at the beginning of this movie for the, for the uh, Vikings and the beginning when they're first trying to translate, they use Greek and then Latin. And so I felt like their use of like him learning the language was done like through several different montages, but it was done in such a way that I thought was really, really unique and interesting. Mm-hmm. And I liked that we are kind of like we just discussed with prey, you know, we are speaking essentially Arabic, Right. Um, since this is our, our, our main character in Antonio Banderas and, um, to us, you know, the white characters are, are the foreign people mm-hmm. and they really do that until about a third of the movie that we mentioned, I think this movie is when we were covering prey, right? Yes. As an example. We did. And how they could have done it. I really like that in this movie. I really like where he's slowly starting to learn the language and like, like verbally things start to change so that we understand it too. Like it was a really neat way to show like what he's, what he's going through and how he's learning the language. I thought it was really, really cool. Yeah. I also like that bully wolf. The, the hero is not the main character, right? That's supposed to be Beowulf. The main character of course is, you know, Antonio Banderas character. I'm uh, I've been Fadlin and he's the heroic witness, but he's not the main character as far as like, um, or he is the main character, but he's not the hero of the story. That's obviously supposed to be Beowulf stand-in, which is Bullet Whiff. That's right. Making his last stand. 
Well, poisoned. Right. And so this isn't like a Luke Skywalker kind of situation where it's like the chosen one, right? He is chosen, but he is one of chosen and he's not the most important either. No. Right. Um, Also, I feel like women in this this story move the story forward and seem to wield an awesome amount of power. On both Um, sides. Like the vulvas uh, that are basically telling them what to do and how many to do it and when to do it. And um, and then, of course, the Wendell mother. Right. It's all about these these um, elder women in both of these tribes. Yeah, they they do push the story forward and they do have a lot of power, but they are barely in the movie. That's right. And like I kind of would have liked to have seen more of them, especially some of those vulvas. Right. The one that was there at the the village that they went to to see more vulvas. I mean, those. But (laughs) that that crazy one that they go see. Right. When they're at the village, I was like, I really, I liked that character. Me too. For the brief moment that I liked she was the one in the, the beginning, the older one. Yeah. Who like, like reads the bones. Yeah. And I really like, to me, it's like this, this whole movie culminates to see that Wendell mother that they have to kill. And it happens. So it ends up being too. like this like 20 year old bitch, you know? And I'm just like, what, what are you doing? Well, and it's like, she was costumed in such a way that I was just like, I didn't even know that she was a woman, first of all. So I didn't know that was the person that they were there trying to kill. I thought she would have matched the statue a little bit more, a which again more. is kind of a tie to ancient, you know, again, Crichton tying this to actual mm-hmm. astrosity. That's like the world's first like documented religion was, you know, uh, worshiping the great mother. I feel like the women, the woman that we see the most in this movie was his like pseudo love interest. And even she was kind of like a happenstance, just their character because like he made it seem like they were starting to develop a romance. And then he's like, well, bye yeah. at the end. And he doesn't even like say goodbye to her at all. Like it's alluded to it's that they had movie. sex, but yeah. like alluded. when he's leaving, he doesn't like give her a hug or anything like that. No, because well, he doesn't give anyone a hug because it's like, Rack cut. Oh, it's because he only like three minutes to get on that boat and leave. He's like, I'm gonna put on my hat and I'm gonna go. From Bullywhiff dying to his funeral to him getting on the boat and saying bye. It was like two minutes. I guess we're just supposed to imagine or believe that he went to his like new romance and is like, Well, I have to go. Yeah. Bye. Love you, bye. Uh I also want to say like this is like the first like modern fantasy has to start to like look modern. I feel like it's a, it's still kind of a precursor to Lord of the Rings. I can um, see that. Fellowship of the Ring didn't come out until 2001, although it started filming in 1999 when this came out. And so it's like the first kind of fantasy-esque movie to start looking modern. And parts of this remind me of like the Two Towers a little bit, you know, it's like the, the child running from the wilderness towards the camp and, you know, some of the stuff that's going on with Edoras, you know, which is kind of based on Beowulf a little bit. I wonder if Peter Jackson likes this movie. I don't know. He did a much better job with his own, obviously. Clearly. Um, You know, and also I feel like there's still a fair amount of horror uh, for a popcorn adventure film. I feel like it's got a little more few clicks of horror than a, than what the the popcorn film goers who don't care about any kind of historicity would have expected or wanted. Yeah. I feel like, I feel like changing the name of this movie to the 13th warrior was the best thing to do because if I, if there were a movie called eaters of the dead, and I went and there was this amount of horror. I mean, there's still some horror in it, but I would expect a movie called Eaters of the Dead to be a horror movie. I, I'm really glad you mentioned that because I feel like that's a really good example. Like, it's kind of uh, it in a nutshell, right? Maybe it's the renaming from Eaters of the Dead to 13th Wire. And that's all that we need to know about what went wrong here between the director, producer, and studio. Do you have any fun facts for me? Oh, I have a couple. That's okay. four. Yeah. Four, I was expecting a lot more than that with this no. with this production history. No, it's all lost to time. Oh, Lord. And okay. lawsuits. And federal prison. And federal prison. 
So when entering the hut, the camera pans over to what is supposedly the mangled, gored, and beheaded victims of the Wendell. Curiously, the scene has been visibly darkened and details blacked out digitally. This was the most. This was most likely done to make sure that the movie stayed within the R rating. This movie was rated R. I think so at the time. Oh, it did not. I thought it was a PG thirteen movie. Okay. Yeah, me too. So, secondly, the film never explains who the mist monsters or the Wendell are. In the novel, they were the descendants of the Neanderthals. Oh. Right? And that would so, have been an interesting fact. Well, right? it kind of makes me think about, you know, the whole uh, cave system thing, right? Because mm-hmm. they were in the caves. And then, like, we talked – I think we talked um, off mic about this a little bit right after we watched it. And I was like, you know what a good pairing with this would be? It would be, like, The Descent. Yes. Right? And I feel like The Descent is what these people really should have been. Yes. Well, it's what they became, at least, right? Yeah. I think that's- well, I feel like they should have been in the in the novel. They're supposed to be like Neanderthalish, right? Mm-hmm. So if they're like cave dwellers who'd survived the last hundred thousand years from when the Neanderthals last existed, you know, two hundred fifty thousand years maybe, if they went into the caves, they'd be become like the fucking Morlocks or some shit. Yeah, they wouldn't mean? look like the way they do in this no, movie, right? And I feel like they would have looked way more monstrous than. I agree. And Neanderthals already don't look really human. God, so that's right. what they should have fucking done. This movie needs to be longer. And I I rarely say that. I know. About movies. But for this one, they need to explain. The more. movie in its current state is too long. It's an hour and 45 minutes, but it feels short because it, you, it leaves you wanting so much more. Yes. So it needs to be like a good, proper, like two and a half hour, like pseudo epic mm-hmm. that takes its fucking time and is edited like professionally. But whatever. Yeah. Okay. Uh, next up, Dennis Storhei, um almost drowned. During the underwater section, Antonio Banderas jumped in the water and pulled him out of the water and saved his life. Oh, look at Antonio. Mm. Everyone likes Antonio. I like Antonio Banderas. So lastly, in accordance with the book, John McTiernan's version of the Wendell's mother was actually an old woman, Mm. played by veteran actress Susan Willis, who's in the credits. When Michael Crichton took over and did the reshoots, he decided that brutally killing off an old lady didn't reflect very well on the heroes. Crichton decided to make her younger, sleeker, and tougher. In the final release, Wendell's mother is played by Kristen Cloak, uncredited. But the final credits still list Susan Willis as Wendell's mother. And I was looking at that because I was looking up Susan Willis. And I'm like, man, she was like 30 back in like the 60s or something. Mm-hmm. I was like, that doesn't match. She looked very young in the 90s. And I'm like, something's not right here. And I finally found it. And IMDb's recesses of knowledge. Kristen Cloak. <laughs> Who's been in a shit ton. She really has. Uh, wasn't she in the fucking... Um, Final Destination? That, and she she played like the older sister in the, the remake of um, that fucking Christmas horror movie. I don't know. Yeah. We talked about it on Patreon. Anyway. Crichton wasn't, didn't have the balls to make it as horrid as his, even his own fucking novel was. I think we've answered our question then. I think we know who he the horror apologist He reshot is. the ending. He removed the fucking effects and the blood and the guts because he wanted to make a fucking popcorn movie that he could say sold a billion dollars. Yeah, but horror movies can but make But he betrayed his own fucking story and his own premise. Mm-hmm. You know, okay. and I'm sure that coupled with the studio and John McTiernan fucking things up, you know, uh, that score itself would have been amazing with this movie. But they just fucked it up. And I really wish someone would just like go into like the crevasses of the archives of Touchstone. <laughs> Which doesn't exist anymore. Descend, if you will, <laughs> into the caves. Into the caves of Touchstone. Which is somewhere like buried on the Disney lot by now. If, I don't if know. a bunch of if a team of lesbians wants to go 
<laughs> into the crevasses of Touchstone <laughs> to, to find the epic cut of the 13th the warrior. <laughs> Nay, eaters of the dead. And <laughs> yes. <laughs> My God. All right. Those were fun facts and enlightening. So I like that we, I, I feel like we've come to an answer on that question we posed earlier. So that's good. Yep. We have other questions to ask about the 13th warrior. And we're going to start with, is this a horror movie? Uh, adjacently. Very adjacently. The, for the first, uh, I want to say once they get to the the village, until about halfway, maybe a little over halfway of the movie, it's straight up. Could be a horror movie. It could. And I feel like these villains are introduced in such a way at the very beginning where everyone seems terrified of them, right? Yeah. These big, burly Norsemen are like, oh my God. You know, and I'm like, that's that's a really good way to introduce a mysterious and and quite possibly scary villain. And then somewhere along the line, they're like, no, this really isn't a horror movie. So, you know, I was just thinking about like other things that came around about this time and the cinematographer that also worked with some other things. God, I want to say like this film would have been directed really well at that time by Ang Lee. There, I said it. My God, Ang Lee's going to come for you right now. If he's listening to this, and I'm sure he is. Whatever, come for me. <laughs> I feel like like based on like some of the things I've seen him do, uh, the cinematography would have been amazing. And then also like uh, the the choreography for like the, the, the monster people going after like them with their claws and stuff. Like Oh yeah. You know, if we were gonna do it like very similar very to crouching like, tiger hidden, exactly, crouching hidden tiger. bear. <laughs> crouching tiger cave bear. <laughs> yeah. It would have been a much better movie, I think. Um but yeah, I mean I, I it's horror adjacent for sure. Yeah. But I think that kind of loses its horror adjacency throughout the movie. Um, were you scared while watching 13th Square? Certainly when I f- was first watched it as like a teenager. Mm-hmm. Um, and Matt also said that, right? Yeah, he did. It's like when they're in their, um, uh, the big house, right? The big Beowulf house or whatever the fuck for the first night and they're all pretending to sleep. They wake up and there's, they know that they're being hunted and the mist comes down and you see the big fire snake coming down, you know, which is just bunch of them with a bunch of the horses, but they do a lot of like subtle supernatural stuff with the mist and mm-hmm. things like that. And if they had doubled down on that, I think it would have been amazing. But anyway, those are the moments before everything was kind of spoiled and explained too early and too, too much um, or shown. Um, yeah. Uh, those were legitimately scary. Well, I feel like, watch. Like the the when they go into that house or whatever and they see the the victims, right? The beheaded victims, right. like that's a really good like horror moment. Yeah. Um, and most definitely when they go into the caves, the lair, right? Because that's like unknown territory for us oh, and, and the characters. Hanging heads or whatever. Yeah. And, the, the and like skulls and shit everywhere. I was yep. like, those are really good horror set pieces. And so like in in a in a different movie, or if this movie were taken in a different direction, I feel like it could have been very, very scary. And there are some tense moments, but it probably was. Yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know that I was really scared watching it. And this is the first time I've seen it. So, um, all right. So out of five stars, what would you give 13th Warrior? I give it a three and a half because um, I think a good half star of that is probably nostalgia boner a little bit. Mm-hmm. Not that I watched this movie a lot. Um, even back then, I wouldn't have described it as great. But the idea of it is great. My memory of it, even now, just talking about all the historicity for it and the potential of it. I'm thinking of this movie as better than it is. You know what I mean? And so it's like, it's greater than some of its parts, but could have been so much greater. And so to me, it's like stuck at that three and a half, you know, the bones are all there. They just, you know, yeah. Couldn't put it all together. I gave it three stars. And I mean, cause it, it wasn't, it wasn't a great movie. It wasn't a terrible movie, you know, like I enjoyed myself 
through a lot of it, um, I feel like this movie is both simultaneously very quick and kind of slow. It's like it's essentially a very middle movie to me. Like it's 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 a good movie, you know, and that yeah. something that I probably wouldn't watch a lot. It's frustrating because it could have been so much better. Exactly. I can see potential when I'm watching it. Um, and obviously it's stuck with you because you have been talking about this movie for a couple of years now, trying to like find a place on the docket and wanting me to see it for the first time. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, it's it's a good movie. Finally, who's the hottest guy in the 13th Warrior? Vladimir Kulich. Who's that? He's the leader daddy. He's big Norse leader daddy. Yeah, Bullywolf. Beowulf himself. Yeah, that's also my choice. Like, I would have said Antonio Banderas until I started watching this movie, and I was just like, no. He's not very hot in this movie. He's hot in Zorro for fucking sure. And that was like after this, I think. I think Antonio Banderas in Desperado was like peak fucking hotness for him. Antonio Banderas is going to be hot, 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 right? But like, there's a lot of this is a fucking dick movie, right? I mean, this is a sausage fest. (laughs) It is a sausage fest. And like, my my second up was going to be Dennis Storhoi because he had such an enjoyable character. And he was the translator? Uh, the he was the translator, and he was the one that like killed the other guy or uh-huh. whatever, and then he was the one that calls Ivan constantly little brother, you yep. know? He was a nice Which guy. is so endearing, you know? And I was like, oh. Yeah, I think Bullywhiff was the hottest guy, but I feel like the Joyous, or whatever his name was, mm-hmm. uh, was like the one that I would date. Yeah. You know? It was yeah. like Mary Fuck Kill. That's yeah. <laughs> In that kind of situation, exactly. That's exactly. I'd be like, yeah. Mary, you know, all the way. I'd be like, he's going to fight for me and he knows how to talk to people. <laughs> I mean, come on. Right. Well, I think that just about wraps up our conversation on the 13th Warrior. As always, we'd like to know what you think about this movie and our conversation about it. Go look for us on social media. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, X. I'm still getting used to saying that. Threads. All the places. You can email us at Tired Queens or call our hotline at 972-666-7733. Ooh, you can whiff my bully. Mmm. <laughs> Enter my Valhalla halls. Descend my hole. <laughs> Descend into my cavernous hole. And witness the bear. <laughs> <laughs> we have one more episode to celebrate the 13thness of this October, and it's a very, very special one. Chris, what are we doing? We're doing the top 13 episodes of X Files. That's right. A top list so important we had to add three extra slots. That's right. Mm-hmm. So stay tuned for that next week. And over on Patreon, we're going to be talking about the original. 13 Ghosts by William Castle. Uh, so head over to patreon.com slash the film flamers, join the family, get all those bonus episodes and these episodes early. That's right. Also, if you like the film flamers, and we know you do, head over to Apple Podcasts or iTunes or really anywhere you can rate and review us, leave us a rating and a review, and we're going to read that on the next Shooting the Flames. Well, Robert. Yes, Chris? I think I need to go and read some ninth or 10th century old English literature. You need to read some epic poetry. So I can have some Svet Dremen. Svet Dremen. Let's see if we can do that together. Svet Dremen. I don't. <laughs> oh my god, that was funny. And stupid. <laughs> 
quite the problem. <laughs> <laughs> I for Luton. Dick. Dick.